everybody. Thank you for listening to the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark. And Liz Lamoury's path to her debut album was not a direct one. She was actually a high-powered Wall Street lawyer. But she wasn't your typical high-powered Wall Street lawyer. She was the only one with purple hair and a spike in her nose who played drums in a punk band. But she met Alan Vega and everything changed. The couple began working on Alan's music together, raised a family, and toured the world. Liz talks about all of that, how Henry Rollins and Jared Artaud of the Vacant Lots had life-changing impacts on her and Alan, the Vega Vault, and how she finally made her debut album like Alan always wanted. And did you know that she also managed professional boxers? She almost became one herself. And she shares how boxing continues to have an effect on her music. Pick up Liz's debut, keep it alive on In The Red Records. Give her a follow at Liz. L-A-M-E-R-E-L-I-Z on Instagram and at Liz underscore Lamory on Twitter. If you're not already, follow us at Performance ANX on both. Please consider supporting the show with a review wherever you listen or financially through ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or performanceanx.threadless.com. So let's get ready to... Hey, I can't say that. I'll probably get sued. Enjoy round one of Liz Lamory on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Okay. Thank you for tuning in to Performance Anxiety. You're listening to Liz Lamory. I appreciate... Oh, no, that's terrible. Sorry. Again, again. I suck at this. All right. I'm having performance anxiety. I'm on performance anxiety, and I'm having performance anxiety. Um Hi, this is Liz Lamory, and you are listening to Performance Anxiety. Thank you for tuning in. I guess that's good enough, because you can patch that in. <laughs> are you going to edit the crap out of this so you actually can be heard talking as well? <laughs> oh, how are you this fine evening? Oh, wonderful. A little chilly. Right? How are you doing? I know. I'm doing well. I just, you know, I'm looking forward to the warm weather, though. Oh, tell me about it. How is it now, almost Didn't we have 80 degrees a few weeks ago? Yeah. <laughs> know, it's May, almost May, and it was almost like May. 37 or something this morning. I'm wearing, I'm wearing a Look a at you. Bama. Roll Tide. <laughs> <laughs> Roll Tide. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big Alabama fan. Lived down there for like 10 years. Nice. Okay. My wife is wife is born and raised down there, and all three of my kids were born down there. My brother actually graduated. I, That's very cool. I adopted all his sports because my college had no sports at all. So they had hockey and rugby, and I think baseball. Wow. I think that was it. <laughs> so. Well, I grew up in the Northeast, just outside of Boston. So big sports fans. Oh, two yeah. older brothers uh, played sports from the time I could walk. Oh, it was either oh. that or get, you know, the crap beat out yeah. of me. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> it was survival mode. I, I was the older brother, so I know what you mean. Yeah. So. yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm so glad Jared connected us. So I'm really looking forward to this. Yes, me, me as well. And, and Jared is awesome. So, yeah. you know, we were really thoughtful of him to, to think of this. He, I know that he spoke with you a couple of times with the vacant lots and also with Black Rebel Motorcycle Club and really loved it. Good. So I'm so happy to hear that. He's he's been so great. So uh your path into music to me, if and from 
the little bit of research I've been able to do is not the usual path into music. If, if, mm -hmm. if I'm reading everything correctly, was mystery. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to add to that. Today. The curtain. Well, exactly. And music wasn't exactly your first career choice. And mm -hmm. was it a big uh, influence in your life? Was it, was it a, a big presence in your, your life growing up? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I don't really see things in terms of career choice. It's, it's a journey that we're all on. Okay. And for me, pursuing, if you want to put it in quotes, a career in law <laughs> <laughs> was more a means to an end. Okay. And I early on discovered, I went to Catholic school 12 years with the nuns, yeah. brutal, so many rules, but it was great because it taught me how to not follow the rules and, and feel <laughs> that, you know, it's okay to have structure, right? Yeah. But you have to decide, you have free choice to kind of decide how you're going to spend your time and focus your energies. And I learned pretty early on that for some reason I could study and memorize material pretty readily. Okay. And I became a very good student because then that allowed me to do all this other stuff I love doing. And one of my brothers who was not a good student, how come Elizabeth gets to go skiing on a school night? I would literally, <laughs> from the time I was like nine, be at the ski area Every afternoon and every evening, I would do my homework like in the hour when the when the lifts weren't operating between six and seven. I'd go into the you know, lodge and do my homework. So it was that sort of thing where, OK, I'm a pretty good student. So I studied psychology. I went to Tufts undergraduate oh, nice. and I was always very athletic. I had two older brothers who played baseball and soccer and ice hockey and hip checking me into the wall, <laughs> and, you know, shooting my, my dolls with BB guns. And, uh, you know, we rode um, mini bikes and, you know, we were very, very active. And so, you know, that was kind of my I always liked to be physically active and engaged. And so when it came time after, after studying psychology undergraduate, I decided, and my dad was a lawyer and I decided, you know, let me go to law school. Like how hard could that be? It's logical reasoning. I, I seem to be pretty good at this logical reasoning thing. I did very well on the eight LSATs. Um, got into Columbia, never had been wow. to New York City. I, I I didn't own a pocketbook. I mean, I was a total tomboy slash punk. Nice. So I'm like, what am I doing here? It was awesome <laughs> because I had like pierced my nose. I wore a spike in my nose. I had purple hair. Wow. And the women back in those days, there really weren't that many women at, in law school, in Ivy League law school. You right, know, they, and yeah. then the ones that were there were really serious. And they're looking at me like, what planet did she just, or tree did she just drop out of? <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm playing drums in, in, you know, bands through, well, it actually started backing up to answer your original question. So growing up, my dad loved music. Okay. And after dinner, he would invite me, oh, let's go sit in the living room and we'll put on, and it was mostly classical music, but he also loved big band. And I remember I must've been, I don't know, nine or 10. And he pulls out, you know, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, yes. that, that record, Whipped Cream. Whipped Cream and other delights. Yes. Yes. And I'm thinking this young, I'm thinking like, hmm, what is this? <laughs> So we're listening to this. And then, you know, then we'd listen to Tchaikovsky or Mozart. And so in terms of like musical instruments, I took piano lessons maybe for a couple of years at like nine, but I didn't really like practicing. I'd rather be out running around, riding my bike, climbing trees. I yeah. didn't want to be. Hip you know, checking your brothers. Scales. 
Exactly. Exactly. Chasing after the boys or the boys chasing after me. Um, so, and it's funny, my dad tells a funny story. I used to watch the boys playing baseball and I must've been really young. He said, the first time I pitched a ball to Liz, she hit a line drive back at me. I almost knocked my face off. <laughs> Typical me, like I'm observing on the <laughs> sidelines, but it's like, Oh, let me in coach. You know, is it my turn at that? You know, this kind of thing. And I great. just almost nailed him. So I had that kind of <laughs> dynamic with my dad. I was probably trying to get out of uh, having to load the dishwasher after dinner. So I would be the one to volunteer to go into the living room and listen to music with him. Uh, that sounds know, like my kids. Smoking his pipe and, you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> and then my older brother lived, he, you know, he moved down into the basement and he had the coolest lair down there. You know, we had the uh, ping pong table and the darts and a great sound system, you know, with the turntable and a great, pretty, when I think back on it now, a very eclectic record collection. So any, oh, cool. everything from hard rock to reggae to funk. And I'd go sneak down there with my friends and get high and when he wasn't there <laughs> and play darts and blast the music, you know, this kind of thing. So pretty soon, one of my best friends, who that later became like my first boyfriend, who I met at the ski area, and we used to be lunatic skiing. I mean, we would fly off the side of the mountain. Oh, man. Just insane. Yeah. Um, he suggested, you know, let's start a band. He was the one that first entered. His name is Brian Pike. He studied glass blowing later in life with Dale Chihuly at Pilchuck. And wow. he lives on Whitby Island off the grid now. He's, he's the coolest guy. Yeah. Oh, so we've stayed in touch all these years. So my 16 year old best bestie, Brian is like, well, let's start a band. And I'm like, great. I wanted to play bass. Cause I love bass. I mean, I'm just in, but then I'm thinking, Hmm, but you might actually have to learn how to play that. But drums, how hard do drums be? <laughs> it's like dancing. I love movement, right? I love physicality and moving. Okay. And I'm like, I bet I could play drums. So we got the drums. We set it up. There was an area of the basement that was unfinished. And we had like a cave, like it's all cement. And we set up our band and we used to rehearse there all the time when my parents would, I don't know why they, they, you know, humored me, but they did. <laughs> and they would go out on the weekends. They loved having date nights on Friday and Saturday. So we'd invite all our friends over and we'd have little like band parties. Oh, and nice. They were like 16. Um, then we'd sneak into the rat and go see like the dead boys or, you know, oh, and, wow. and Brian and he introduced me the Stooges. He would find all these tapes. I don't even know where he would find them, but he had Velvet Underground and Iggy and Patti Smith. And, oh, you know, wow. and we're like, Whoa, this is like a whole other world now. And the freedom of that was like, wow, like we can just pick up instruments and we're going to just start a band. We called ourselves backward flying Indians. Oh, and wow. So cool, right. <laughs> BFI. You know, there were big garbage trucks that had BFI on the side of them. And Brian, he was very creative. He's like backward flying in. Like, what does that stand for? And he'd make up the quirkiest little lyrics for songs. And stuff. Oh, so nice. I was always just the drummer, a little bit of backup singing. But I was always like, what am I going to say? Like, I was very, very shy about writing lyrics. So, you know, he was really the main writer and the, you know, the, the main impetus for this whole thing. Okay. And that carried on through, you know, when I went, went away to college, I played in a couple of bands during college, but nothing, you know, just for fun. Okay. And we continued playing. Brian and I, you know, stayed close and we continued playing through college. When I went to law school, um, I formed a band called Moral Turpitude. And that was a lot of fun. We would air up like the case books and stuff. (laughs) This nonsense. I mean, silly stuff, just for fun. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just for fun. So that was kind of, you know, broad brush overview of of my background. But I always, 
always loved music. And I, even then, I think I realized that, you know, it's very difficult in the creative fields to have financial independence. Yeah. And because I was fortunate and, you know, I came from a middle-class background where we had the resources and my dad was a lawyer and, you know, it was just, there was a path there that seemed like path of least resistance in some regards. It was also super interesting being on wall street during the days. This was during the hostile takeovers. And when insider trading first hit the press Uh, and because I did well in law school, I ended up at a big wall street firm representing people like Drexel Burnham and Michael Milton, the whole insider trading thing. I was in on seeing how the investment bankers, I don't want to get into any trouble with any, but you know, there was a lot of shit going down. And because I had that, you know, I was surrounded by that frat boy thing because I grew up with, with guys. It didn't phase me. And I was able to kind of be a fly on the wall and be cool, so to speak. Taking this in and observing and thinking, this is, holy shit, this is insane. And I met Alan after I had only been doing that for a couple of years. So he, and I did it for six years. So I was able to buy my first apartment, like just get my financial security, like locked down. And then knowing that then I could do whatever I wanted to do in terms of creating and helping Alan, you know, in terms of, you know, pursuing his creative vision without, although he used to joke that he could, you know, live in a refrigerator box on the Bowery. He had, he (laughs) single-handedly had the least amount of material needs of any person I had ever met in my life and since. I mean, it was so beautiful. I'm so envious of that. Right? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with the stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash performanceanxiety. That's betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Ah. Especially when you see such conspicuous consumption on the other hand. And the guys that I was working with on Wall Street, they're in their early 30s and they look like they're like ready to drop. They're walking out of the crypt, right? Yeah. Because they're working around the clock. They're stressed. There's so much like, stress talk about in performance anxiety, right? There's a lot of money riding on this and, and they're just not taking care of themselves. And then I meet Alan by the time I met him in 85, late 85, you know, he's in his late, he was like 47, 48. And I'm thinking he's like 30. 
Honest <laughs> to God, I know for like six months. <laughs> he lived at the Gramercy Park Hotel, right? And I'm like, I open the drawer to his desk to get a pen or something. He asked me to grab a pen. And I see this little black and white photograph and I flip it over and it's like, Alan, age two, 1940. And I do yeah. the math in my head. I'm like, holy shit, <laughs> he just turned 48. I was more in love with this man oh, in that moment. That <laughs> is... like, I was so unbelievably blown away because he just had this incredible youthful spirit but right until the end i mean his body might have been failing him but his his energy and his life force and everything else what he exuded yeah. um was just so remarkably amazing so and, and vital how did you end up meeting alan vega in the first place well, um, I had been, I was kind of became known at the law firm as being like the punk rock drummer. Okay. And so another lawyer, she was a litigator. I was, I, I like corporate law, right? Because okay. at first the litigators are in the library and they're doing all these memos and everything. And if you miss a case, you're going to fuck this thing up. Yeah. But the corporate lawyers are going to meetings <laughs> and there are deals being done and you get to hang out and listen to the business people and the, and the you know, partners discussing yeah. these deals. Okay. And then you get to be the one that gets to document them or go to the printer and file all the documents with the SEC and that sort of thing, which was unbelievably mind numbing pouring <laughs> to the point where I'm like, please dear God, let this deal die. So ultimately I said, you know, am I really investing this much time in something that I'm hope you have no passion for a and B I'm hoping that the things die oh. rather than trying to put something together and affect relationships you care about. So, yeah, so that was all happening behind the scenes. So anyway, in any event, Dory was Mark Cooch. It was Alan's um, guitarist in the Alan Vega band from the early eighties. He okay. did the, uh, right. He did the collision drive album with him and he toured with him. Okay. kind of mid i think they met at max's kansas city at Mar Mar uh, cooch was a big guy head to toe leather oh, you know wow. he looked like heavy metal and but he was the salt of the earth the nicest guy and you just felt like you were totally safe around. oh <laughs> yeah i bet loved it. they were very very close so dory says hey my brother's gonna be picking me up and we're gonna go pick up alan vega at the gramercy park hotel he just put out a, a record just a million dreams on Electra Records, and there's a big record release party at the Palladium. So we're going to swing by the Gramercy and pick up Alan. Do you want to come? And I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds like fun. I had never heard of Alan Vega or Suicide. Right. I said, okay, that sounds cool. And so I put proceed to like take off the three piece suit, put the the spike in the nose, the combat boots, right. some kind of after the Holocaust type outfit. And this ensemble yeah. was not inviting. I did probably did not look very feminine, but I, I probably looked pretty tough. Oh, and man. we show up at the Gramercy and Alan opens the door and he had this, just this incredible energy about him. And behind him, I, I remember the first vision of him, you know, he's got the hair and the bandana yeah. and there's 
there were light sculptures on the wall and there was like machines on the floor and he's like who are you and da -da 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 -da, rapid fire like da -da 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 -da. <laughs> <laughs> he'd probably done some coke in the bathroom like five minutes <laughs> Is that okay to say? <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. It was the 80s. It was the 80s. Exactly. It's a podcast. Nobody cares. Right? Right. So, yeah. And But it was the same. I had the same kind of like, holy shit, who is this guy? Reaction. Like, we were both hit by lightning. Oh. And we go off to the Palladium. And Alan kept breaking away because everyone, he's, you know, they're there to see him. And yeah. everyone's talking to him. But he kept breaking away and coming over and talking to Dory and myself and so what's your story? And then you're really a lawyer. You're a Wall Street lawyer. And she's like, and she's also a drummer. And Dory kept saying, go away. She doesn't want to talk to you. Uh, I think Dory wanted to fix me up with her brother, quite uh, frankly. And she was probably being a protective friend, thinking, oh, Rockstar, he's got all these groupies. Liz is going to get hurt because yeah. Liz is like, like, you know, girl next door kind of girl. That makes sense. That makes sense. Right? It makes sense. Yeah. And then he goes off on tour right after. But fast forward about six weeks. And I find out that, that they're back from tour. I said, you know what? I know where he lives. I'm not shy. I'm picking up the phone. I'm going to call him. I've been thinking about him all this time. I called him. He's like, Liz, oh my God. I've been thinking about you the whole time I was gone. W when can you come over? Come on over. We'll hang out. So I went over there. We sat in the bar at the Gramercy and proceeded to talk for like six hours straight. Oh, wow. And we were more or less together. And he came He was so adorable. I got you this scarf at this flea market. I got you this necklace. Like during the tour, he's buying things, thinking of me. Aww. It was so sweet. I'm like, oh my God. And Dory's like, forget about him. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> just, she says now that she kind of was figuring we'd, you know, be a good match. But Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's basically how we met. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, and 31 years later, and I can honestly say, honest to God, I never lost that sense of, and you know, we lived together for the first like six or seven years. It was great because I had my place. He still had the place at the Gramercy mm -hmm. would go out a lot, would, would go back and forth from place to place. But he officially like moved in with me and like 88 would see each other like every single day. And the first few years I was still doing this crazy job. And he's like, he, it was insane. I was telling him stuff behind the scenes yeah. and he's like holy shit this is insane <laughs> <laughs> you're dealing with um, I can only but, and he always got it he was so smart like he understood even though it seemed like it was com a completely different world from his world he completely got it but yeah so I still to, to, to the very end always got that sense of butterflies and that sense of excitement oh I'm going to see Allie I'm going to I'm going to Allie's going to Oh, it sounds really so cheesy, but it's, it's so beautiful. true. It's yeah. So it, you know, he was just an amazing person, an incredible person, and he inspired me in so many ways. So the opportunity to to it's funny because he had been in a prior relationship where working together wasn't necessarily a, a positive thing. Oh. And so he had kind of jokingly at first said, oh, and he would come to say, I was playing in a band called Snub at the time when we met. I played drums, Sergeant Slaughter's No Underwear Band, shout out to them. And they were awesome. <laughs> they were so much fun. Uh, Catherine was at Barnard. Bob had been just graduated from, I think, the School of Visual Arts. And uh, John was at Hunter College. And here I am working on Wall Street. <laughs> what a crew. But it was so, we had so much fun. And Alan came to see a couple of our, we played it like CBGBs and stuff like nothing serious because again, it was not like 
career. We weren't like careerist about it. We were having a lot of fun and the songs were so quirky and silly and we weren't taking ourselves seriously and we were having a blast and, and that was great. But Alan used to joke and say, you know, oh, we're not going to do music together. And then a few years later, he's like, you know, I'm thinking of going into the studio because he had come off Electra Records and he started really to reconstruct what he wanted to do with music. He wanted okay. to get back to his roots and really experimenting with sound. I mean, back in the sixties, he'd take a transistor radio and walk around the streets and record sounds, Wow, you know, and then, and then play with the sounds. Music concrete. So, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and people don't realize how much he contributed to suicide just in terms of the creative direction of sound and, and that sort of thing. I mean, Marty is absolutely brilliant yeah. and in terms of melodies and everything else, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. But Alan was more of that like hard sounding, you know, he just, anything that was like just really crazy static. And so, you know, we, I think we had a really nice balance to each other Okay. because I also am more into a little bit of that hooky melodies and layering melodies and, but love the crazy sounds, the crazier, the better. Oh, that's so, awesome. Um, yeah. So we started going into the studio together, probably 88, 89. Okay. And my band Snub and I had had recorded with an engineer, Perkin Barnes. Um, we did some recordings, again, of some more traditional songs where Bob would write the songs and we'd rehearse them and then would, you know, record them and, uh, and play out a bit. So we had done some recording and this dude Perkin was so cool and so laid back. So when Alan said, I really want to start going in the studio, I said, oh, I've got a great studio. We could, cause this guy Perkin, he's so chill and so laid back. And I know he's into like getting all like the latest effects machines and equipment and stuff. Oh, man, there you and go. And Perkin was so cool about, he played bass in like a funk band um, back in the day. And he just had that really cool laid back vibe. And we would do crazy stuff with the machines because we didn't, Alan was funny. He'd, he'd go in and be like, I don't want to look at the manual. We're just going to start turning knobs and, and hitting things and oh. making sound. And you just record it. You just tape is rolling. That and is awesome. And they're going to be like, oh, wow, man, that's so cool. <laughs> A lot of engineers would be like, don't fuck off my machine. Yeah. I just paid a lot of money for that. And for yeah. <laughs> like, man- oh, wow, man. Ripping up the manual. And- yeah, and Alan was super intense and Perkin was really chill. So it was like really a great, a great combination. Oh, that is I'm awesome. sorry. I'm like, I, I'm off and running and. No, no, that's fine. I, I love this. This is great. Yeah. Oh, you're already answering most of the questions I've had so far. So that's, oh, uh, it's, it's, it, it works out perfectly. People don't, they don't tune in to, yeah, they don't tune in to hear me talk. So. Oh, come on. Oh God, it's... no. <laughs> so. <laughs> When did you start playing out live with him? So that's another interesting question because Alan, you know, after all the experience with suicide, he had a love hate relationship with being on stage. Right. I mean, he probably had a little bit of (laughs) 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 post-traumatic STD, right. Whatever it is. PTSD. (laughs) Oh my God. I can't even say it. Um, But, you know, after having axes thrown at his head and, you know, everything that happened in the early days of suicide, he was, he, he, it's funny because he loved being on stage. He loved the energy of that, but he wasn't chomping at the bit to get back to doing that. So the, I would say probably the first several years were spent working on the first album we did together, Deuce Avenue. Deadly dealers, but 
after like 20 songs worth of material, I said, can we like put like 10 things together and, you know, like make an album? Yeah. Because maybe instead of being on a major label where they give you this huge recording budget and then they proceed to spend it all on your behalf right. and then you're recording against your minuscule royalty rate for the next, you know, infinity. Yeah, exactly. Um, why don't we produce our own albums and just license them to smaller labels for a modest advance and then which will then fund the next one and we can just keep making records and and you know and that's what we proceeded to do for that's, the next you know eight albums that awesome. and that allowed us to j then really go on tour more to kind of for me because like yay i wanted to travel yeah. and see europe <laughs> and but also to kind of get re a little bit of a reality check alan liked to do well let's kind of road test this and see what what people think when they hear it Okay. So we started to do a little bit of that. We aligned ourselves at like Mark Hurtado, who was a French um, avant-garde filmmaker and musician with his brother in Attent Donnay, had asked Alan to do a collaboration and a vocal on some of their music. So we became friendly with them. And Mark started inviting us to go do shows in Europe. And he would put together these like really interesting, quirky, special event. Like Alan, we did a couple of tours after like Deuce Avenue and Power Onto Zero Hour. We were on MusiDisc. We were on what, Chapter 22. We were in a couple of different small labels. So we did do a couple of like two week tour type things okay. where it would be just enough fun where you didn't get sick of it. And you're not like, <laughs> cause it's, it's grueling being on tour. Yeah. And again, you know, Alan's now in his fifties, um, he'd rather be in the studio making music than being on the road. He'd, he'd kind of been there and done that a lot, Yeah. you know, with, with both with suicide and with the early band, which was more of a traditional band. So now Alan and I are, are creating all these sounds in the studio that you really can't recreate live. So what we would do live is we'd have a lot of pre-recorded stuff and then I would layer like an effects machine or a live, you know, those crazy drum pad things where you can hit the drums and yeah. just layer sounds. And then I would do a little bit of backup vocal type thing, but I never really considered myself a singer. You know, I sang in the choir back in elementary school. Yeah. And in high school, I choked. I wanted to be in the choir, but I choked at the audition. Oh. And couldn't eke out a sound. Oh, no. Which was a blessing, because then, you know, I started my own band instead of oh, singing and, you know, spending my time singing. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey, guys, I want to talk to you about socks for a second. Why not? It's a music podcast. But I tried a pair of socks from Boldfoot and loved them. I've only worn them once because my kids have stolen them. So in my household, that's the best endorsement I can give. And I guess it's fitting because the design I chose was jailbait. Wait, jailbird. The design I chose was jailbird. I might keep that in. The socks are 100% American made and 5% of all proceeds go to veteran charities. It makes sense seeing that Boldfoot is a family and veteran owned company. They have a huge variety of styles. So check out boldfoot.com and buy some of the best socks you've ever slapped on your feet and help veterans while you're at it. That's boldfoot.com. 
Although fast forward, our, our son Dante, um, I did from the time he was seven, I put him in the Trinity Wall Street Choristers, which was a youth choir oh. um, right at the top of Wall Street. I happened to see from the time we, you know, Dante was an infant. Every time he went to sleep, I would play classical music for him. And uh-huh. pretty soon he would always be humming. And every time he went to go to go to sleep, as soon as I would put him in and the lights would go off, I would hear him start humming. And so I read in the paper, does your child love to sing? And I'm thinking, I bet he would. And it was an ad for Trinity Wall Street. They were just forming a youth choir. Oh, so wow. he was in the, in the you know, one of the originate, original members. And it was mostly girls, but there were a handful of boys. For the next 10 years, he proceeded to get every single solo. I mean, he, wow. he soloed like in every, and he was so just so quietly confident. Like he's got this, he's, he's a Mayan Indian and he has like this really cool nature about him. He, oh. And so, oh. yeah, so it was really kind of cool. So he, on the other hand, unlike Alan and myself, has had formal musical training. And then he taught himself to play a variety of instruments. He's now a sound engineer. Yeah, it's much more of a proficient. I mean, he's a savant when it comes to music theory. Wow. Um, yeah, he's actually quite brilliant. And it's kind of ironic because Alan also was considered quite brilliant in math and physics. Oh, wow. And he was a physics major at Brooklyn College before he transferred to to art, much to the chagrin of his parents who probably <laughs> wanted to be a doctor or oh, a yeah. lawyer, this kind of thing. <laughs> not, so, not an incredibly influential musician. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Although there were many years where people just didn't get it. Yeah. And it's funny because he, he had to live with, because I witnessed it firsthand and they tell you this all the time. Right. And this kind of harkens back to me saying, you know what, I'm not going to be tied into trying to figure out how to monetize my creative being. You know, yeah. I want to be free to use creativity as a way of expressing my individuality without figuring out how am I going to somehow put this out there in a way that is going to be received in a way that's going to be come whatever it is. Like, I don't even like to think in those terms. Yeah. And I, and the beauty of being with Alan is he was very much the same, like that was his whole ethos, right? He yeah. created purely for creation's sake. And that's why he did not get on well being on the major label and what it was the most freeing thing to come off of that and to start over and be able to literally experiment in a way that he wasn't even able to do with suicide. He was able to just purely create sound that he was hearing and create and, and, and search for sound that he had never heard before. I helped him and I was there working alongside him and learned so much from him. But my mission still felt like it was Alan's vision mm-hmm. and he was the director of sound and I was he- helping to execute it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, every time I would add an element and it would tend to be something that was a little bit more melodic. Like there's a song do Jang praying off the album, do Jang praying that yes. I'm very proud of because I basically wrote the music. Yeah. Oh, 
and, and ironically, Bruce Springsteen listed it as one of the songs that he listens to in Mojo Magazine years ago. And I'm like, yes, I love that is awesome. And Henry Rollins loved that song, and it's just got a great. But that's a that's a perfect example of you can kind of tell which songs I had more of a lead on in terms of creating the melodic flow, and we would often fight Perkin would love it because we'd be like fighting like cats and dogs. We loved each other so much, but like, fuck you, Alan. He'd be like, fuck you, Liz. We're not, that's too good. That sounds, do something else. I'm like, oh, but I love that. I love that sound. Or there'd be a little sound where we go to mix. I'm like, oh, but I love this sound. Alan would want everything in. The cacophony, yeah. the, the most you know, brutal sounding, he'd love it. Yeah. And fuck them if they can't feel it and hear it and da 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 da. And I'd be like, oh, but I love this little nuance right here. Yeah. <laughs> Dial that in a little more or pull these things out so we have space and compression and all this, you know, whatever it was back then, you know. We, yeah. I loved working the mixing board, you know, the three of us would line up. Okay, at 30 seconds, you're going to pull out two and four and I'm pushing up six and eight, you know, right? That is now awesome. it's all in a grid. I love working with my son, Dante, who's a sound engineer. You know, Jared Arteau, who, who's producing music out of the vault with me, is yes. just absolutely brilliant and technically very proficient and knows, you know, everything there is to know about really enhancing sound and everything else. Yeah. Um, but I'm still old school. And Dante will say to me, but your ears are so good because you don't have to rely on, you know, oh, we'll just put it up on the grid and then everything will be auto-corrected and everything will slot into where it's supposed to be. And and this will be the pattern. And that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it, we don't do any of that. It's like oh, we're creating this. We still have that kind of creating it from scratch. It might sound like, because I just happen to love layering simple riffs. I mean, that's how I create my music. I just, I just layer riff after riff and it's just stuff that resonates with me. I don't know where it's coming from. It's not a preconceived thing. It's very similar to what I d did with Alan. You know, I finally have time with Dante I jump on the machines. I just start, you know, just just start recording. Yeah. We go back. We listen. We, we we pick stuff that we like. We start layering it, and and it's the same thing with the vocal. I had no clue how to sing because for me, the only actual singing I did was I would grab vocals from the various songs that we were performing live. Okay, and I would basically be feeding them to Alan so he would know what song we're on. So it's like you know, um, wow. you know, whatever psychopatha, you know. And I'm boys and girls, you know, moms and dads, you know, we can blah 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 blah. <laughs> here, here we are in in you know Crazyland, whatever it was. And then Alan would know what song he was. That's amazing. I now I've heard that live he wouldn't play the same song twice the same no. way ever. Ever, oh. never. And so he didn't want to go to sound check. He didn't want to know what the set list was. <laughs> I literally knew all of that. <laughs> I'd go into the per studio with Perkin and make the, you know, the recordings would pull out all the vocals or sometimes would leave some of his vocal in okay. for the most part would pull out the vocals would, you know, get different mixes. And then so I'd have a master recording and then I would have sound effects that I would then of, on CDs that I would then run through the effects machine and then I could play that live, but I was playing effects from the original recording, but then morphing it through an effect machine. So it still works, but yeah, and it was wow. so much fun. And then Alan was total, the, the, the vocals were total freestyle. And as I said, I would just pick like two or three key phrases from each song 
And I'd be in the background kind of chanting them out so that he would know which song it was so that he might pick up on that or he might not. He might make it a completely different song. The music would be more or less the same with me adding stuff, but the vocal completely different. But I love that because it was so freestyle and so freeing and people didn't seem to mind. You know, he said I'd I'd kill myself if I had to be like Mick Jagger and like create right do the same performance people wanted to sound just like the record and so he got lucky because he never did that with suicide either until the very end when people wanted to hear that classic first suicide album and then he actually enjoyed performing that because it was pretty simple right how many lyrics were there yeah (laughs) and that's how could it be that's the thing i gotta i've gotta thank jared for this because i i didn't get into suicide until having him on the show, I it was. I'd listen to someone, and I'd say, I just, I don't get it. And then, yeah. you know, speaking with Jared, I'm like, I, I, and knowing his involvement with with the, the Vega Vault, and I, I, I gotta go back. I gotta give it a listen. And it's so much different than when the first time I heard it, year, when you know, decades ago. Yes. And it's just, I'm well, so. You're a different person too, exactly, right? Exactly. Exactly. I love that when you revisit stuff that you a different version of yourself heard and you're hearing it completely differently the two biggest examples of that for me are are suicide and swans nice neither of them hit me when i first heard them and and now i'm into them so it's it's yeah it's definitely worth going back to things and to things you didn't understand or or get years ago and and, and give another shot Mm -hmm. yeah so how did jared come into your guys your life you're in alan's life well I think it must have been around 2014 and Jared reached out to me on Facebook and introduced himself and he was, you know, his approach, you know, Jared, he's such a nice guy. He's really great. He's very cool, super bright. And there was just something about his vibe, the way he reached out and said, you know, my band, the vacant lots has covered Alan's song, no more Christmas blues. We didn't butcher it, you know. He's not gonna, you know, this kind of thing. Oh yeah. Uh, he's very gracious, and I listened to it. I was at the office at the time, and I listened to it, and I said, "This is really cool." I, I have a feeling Alan is gonna really like it because they made it their own. Yeah. Right. It still had that kind of cool bluesy rockabilly vibeness to it, but they totally made. You could tell that they brought their themselves to it. And that's something that's going to resonate with Alan. Right. Okay. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to play. I said, I'll play it for him when I get home. So I got home and he was probably doing something else. I said, I I want you to listen to this thing. Honest to God, within like 10 seconds, who is this? Where are they? Da da da. I love this. (laughs) And then I'm like, well, it's this kid from Facebook. I shouldn't say kid, but you know, this guy from Facebook who, you know, vacant lots, and so when I reached back out to Jared, they were going to be on coming through New York. They were on tour, I think, with Dean Wareham. Oh, and Alan's like, let's invite them over. 
you know? <laughs> hey, just you come on no over, idea guys. How rare. That's, that is so freaking rare. You know, people would always send stuff around and it'd be like tossing it out or whatever. No, but I, I shouldn't say that because he's, was, you know, but at the same time, he was so interested in, he didn't listen to a lot of different things. And during the years of working with Alan, I really didn't either. It sounds cryptic. Don't say that. You don't listen to music. But we really, because when I wasn't working or doing all these other things I like to be involved in, and I ended up, I was coaching Dante's teams for, for like 10 years. I coached baseball and soccer because, again, I was like really into sports. Yeah, and yeah. then that led me to be on the board of directors of the Little League, which led me to be on the community board, <laughs> all for downtown Manhattan, <laughs> this, this area of the, you know, the financial district, which before was like a, a you know, had no families. And then after September 11th, we had like all these young families with kids who wanted to play sports. So I got very actively involved in all of that. So when I wasn't in the studio, when I wasn't working or in the studio, um, you know, I wasn't listening to a ton of music other than Alan would pick up like mixtapes on the side. You know, the the hip hop guys were were putting out a ton of mixtapes back in those days. Yeah, And we were loving the sound, like the whole idea, they were doing similar things in terms of just trying to create their beats were just layers of sound, like yeah, very yeah. simple layers of sound, but they're so groovy and so like, right. And then you just kind of rap to it. And that one was like one of the original rappers, you yeah. know, when you think about it, you know, the, his style, nobody quite sang like Alan. Oh, for sure. You know? And it, it, he's telling, he's telling a story and he's becoming these characters and he's believing it so intensely and that was also a big lesson for me when it came time for me to think about, you know, Alan's not here. I love, oh, so back to Jared. I'm sorry. I'm jumping around. That's okay. People are going to really have to drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> <ball. laughs> they like, what the hell is she talking about? No, sorry about great. That. I love it. Even you a disclaimer. When I get excited and passionate about something, I am often running. I hope I'm not speaking loudly too, because I talk loud and fast. No, it's fine. It's fine. The louder, the better. Oh, good. I don't. That way, I don't have to do so much in post. Okay, good. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so back to Jerry. Yes. So that all happened, and then Alan is like, "You got to invite them over," which again was so rare. I'm like, "Okay, great." So they came over for like. Jared calls it brunch. I'm like, well, what are we going to feed them? They're coming over at like noon because they, I think they had to do sound check or something. And I, Oh, we'll get bagels and cream cheese and stuff or sandwiches or whatever we got. Yeah. And, and Jared tells the story better than I do, but he's like, he's like getting off the elevator thinking, holy shit, we're about to meet Alan Vega. He's going to meet us at the door with like a chain or a knife or like, he's going to kill us. Like, what are you doing here? Motherfucker. (laughs) You're bothering me. You know, this kind of thing. And he couldn't have been more gracious because, you know, he, he, he loved being a mentor kind of thing. And he, and he loved, first, first of all, he loved what they did. You know, he loved that they had their own thing and their, their style. And there was something just about what they brought to this that, yeah, that really yeah. resonated with him. And he and Jared hit it off. I mean, Brian's great too, but Jared happened to live nearby. And so he would, Jared would pop over and come, come visit and hang out with Alan and talk for hours. It reminded awesome. me of the early relationship with Henry Rollins when Henry knocked on our door in like 92 and said, Hey, I found this album Deuce Avenue in Europe. And why isn't this shit out in, in the U S you, know, <laughs> you put out power on. And Henry's like, listen to all this stuff. And Alan and I are looking at each other like, who is this guy? He called me up. We didn't know who he was, but Alan's like, why does this guy from this hardcore band want to meet me? Oh and then meanwhile, God. Henry comes over. He's like, I knew it. 
He's got piles of journals. He must write every day. Nobody writes lyrics like he does unless they write all. And sure enough, Alan had stacks and stacks of notebooks filled, filled with lyrics and his wow. drawings and his sculptures. And Henry's like, this is like an explosion of art in this apartment. <laughs> and, and the two of them spent like eight hours the first day. Alan's like, why is he coming over? And then meanwhile, it's like they were like best buddies eight hours later where they've discussed everything from philosophy to, I mean, wow. Henry is so unbelievably well-read oh. and eclectic and yeah. music, everything to do with music, history, art, everything. And Alan's the same way. Alan blew my mind. It's like, where does he pick up all of this knowledge, like this thirst for like, it's like an encyclopedia of knowledge. That's amazing. And so the two of them got on so well and it's a similar kind of reaction with jared where of course there was a much bigger age difference and alan you know was in final stages of his life so you know after 2012 he had a lot you know physical issues um but he kept working especially his art oh my gosh he kept drawing and then he came back to painting and he was doing his sculptures we still went in the studio because he was working on the album it yeah he really wanted to finish he considered that his greatest masterpiece hey the bastard is dead with the rat traps. So, um, you know, Jared asked if his label wanted to do like a split single with us. So Alan's like, why don't you go, he said to me, why don't you go into the studio and see if we've got something that we haven't previously released? So I went in and Perkin and I kind of went through and I just happened to see, we're scrolling through and I see Nike Soldier. that and i'm like i vaguely remember that because this is from like the 90s right oh, it's not 2015 but this is a song we did it must have done sometime in the 90s because oh, okay. we would literally go into the studio and for every album we released we probably had i would no exaggeration 20 to 30 songs worth of material where then i would and he wasn't picking cherry picking it would be whatever evolution he had come to of a particular cluster of songs that we were working on at the time that I would say, Hey, can we release an album? I yeah. gotta go <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> we would then focus in and then he'd be like, Oh fuck. Now I got to go into, he would write every night. So we already had lyrics. He'd be like, Alan, just pull out the notebooks, you know, just like when he did Cubist blues with Ben Bond, I love he writes, that pulls out the, writes one song, brings the New York post and the rest of the album is just riffing freestyle from headlines from the New York Post. Yeah, yeah, make it big, eh? Yeah, there ain't no sits. Yeah, it's just a slow, slow dip. Hey, so what do you think? 
same kind of thing i'm like alan just you know pull out your stuff would go in he'd go into the studio and we would finish an album would do all the music first he'd literally go into the booth and do like one song after another. oh my these God. performances i'd be the one saying can you do that again and he'd go in and do a completely different performance so we have vocal alternate versions of vocals for wow. stuff that we love albums we did release We've got vocals on stuff where on any given night, we might've spent like the last four or five sessions just working on sounds. And I might want to hear Alan sing. So I'd be like, Oh, when we go in the studio on Friday, can you, can we can you do like a vocal on one of the tracks? And oh. he'd go in and do it. So we've got tons of stuff. Um, that's kind of like jumping into like talking about what's in the ball. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the reason I mention that now, it might seem like a non sequitur, but is because in the context of doing a split single with the vacant lots, I go into the studio by myself, see Nike soldier. And in an afternoon, mix it, bring it home. And Alan's like, wow, he, he didn't even remember this song. Cause it was from like 20 years ago. <laughs> Man. Like, Holy shit. I'm like, Alan, you have no idea. There's like <laughs> so many others like that. Perkin and I were, we, you know, we, we did that one. And then just for sh shits and giggles, we start, Hey, what's this, you know, mutator thing, you know, yeah. and what's this, you know, this kind of thing. We started listening to other tracks and we're like, you have no idea. There's like all these things that are like real songs. And, and he's like, great. So once I'm dead, <laughs> once I'm dead, you, you got, you guys have my blessing. Go in there and, you know, feel free to release any of this stuff. Wow. You know, this is actually pretty good. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, it really is, Alan. So, and, you know, he had said by that point too, you know, there's like a couple of people in life whose, whose judgment I really value. Cause you know, you get to a point where when you're younger, you worry about other people's expectations or what people are going to think or yeah. da, 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 da. One of the things I loved about Alan is he he let go of all of that. By the time I had met him, he had let go of, and it was such a beautiful, freeing thing. And it really helped me too, because I was like the good soldier, you know, my parents expect me to get straight A's. I am expected to like, you know, be the one, I'm the fixer. People, you know, I'm the man, you know, we can talk about boxing because I ended up starting to manage boxers too a number of years ago. Yeah. But for some bizarre reason, I would be the one people would come to when the shit hits the fan and like, what are we going to do? And I don't know, maybe it's just, it's the way my, my mind works or whatever. But with that comes worrying about people's not disappointing people. And oh, then with sure. that comes, what are their expectations? And with that comes a lot of unnecessary baggage that as I've gotten older, I've also been able to let go of, and it's so beautifully freeing and it's so wonderful because I really don't need to say fine art of not giving a, giving a fuck, you know, that yeah. Alan had mastered that by the time I met him, <laughs> which doesn't mean that he didn't care because he was one of the most caring and sensitive and empathetic and thoughtful people I'd ever met. But it, when it came to his own ego, he was able to let go of, I'm just going to be free to do what follow kind of what I'm, my vision is yeah. and not worry about the rest. So, <clears throat> so Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just, I wanted yeah, to. I'm not going to let you wedge. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is, like I said, this is fine. Oh. People want to hear you, not me. So I'm under the impression that for a long time, Alan wanted you to record an album. Yes. Well, you know, and that harkens back to when I was saying, like, when we'd be mixing together at the end, the final stages of doing the album, like he would early on, he was having me play all the machines. And then round about 1990, just before Dante was born, the album 2007 
is mostly Alan playing the machines. I came in at the end of that, and that was done in 1998. Just before Dante was born, I stopped coming into the studio as much. And Alan started just playing, because we were running a lot of sounds. We were creating sounds and then running it through and triggering it through the keyboard. And I would always play like riffs on the keyboard and would run different sounds with that sort of thing. So Alan, 2007 is even more stripped down and minimal than that. And, and at the end, he had me come in and layer in some melodies and stuff like that. Okay. But he, he did most of that album himself. But prior to that and subsequent to that, I was always involved in the mixing stage. And that's where we would butt heads a little bit because I would want to hear a little bit more of the melody. I would want to pull things in and out yeah. so that there was separation of space and the sounds because I thought the sounds were so cool. And so Alan would say to me, you know, you should do your own music. Like you're a really great musician. And I would say to him though, but what am I going to sing about? Like, I didn't feel like I, what am I going to say? You know, for me, the, the hurdle was more lyrical content, mm -hmm. but from all the years of seeing Alan writing in his notebooks and after he passed away, I started journaling and just writing observations down. And I also have, have a good friend, Jesse Mallon, who I think is a brilliant singer songwriter. Yeah. Jesse. Yes. And you know, he's a guy who, you know, at 12 and 13 is in this, like he played recently for me, the first album he did. I've never heard hardcore punk played so fast in my time. I'm like, how the, how the <laughs> fuck do you guys play so fast? It's incredible. So he went from that to, of course, and then Degeneration, amazing, to now a really brilliant singer songwriter yeah. and just beautiful. His, his evolution has been beautiful to watch. But the one thing that also influenced me from Jesse was everywhere he went, he would keep like a little notebook. And if he made an observation or had a thought, he'd, he'd write it down. Okay. And that, this was right after Alan passed. I'm thinking that I love that. That what a great idea, you know. And I started doing that, and then I realized, you know what? I guess I do have. I've, I've been around a while now. I've had some experiences. I'd like to think I've made some decent observations that other people might resonate with other people. Yeah. And hey, fuck it. You know that kind of fuck them if they can't take a joke thing. Hey, like yes. You know, wouldn't it be fun? I love making the music. The music, I don't feel self-conscious about. That's fun. But it's like, I always had a little bit of that hesitation. And then I don't know how to sing. So but it was the same kind of thing. When I was first starting on this album, it was literally just like the expression from boxing, let your hands go. Okay. Because I had written all this stuff and I'm just going to perform it as if I'm telling a story. And I'm internalizing kind of similar, I guess, to what Alan was doing, like internalizing the characters in the story. And then it's almost like theater, right? If okay. you were right, you can, the best way to convey a song, you don't have to be the best singer in the world, but if you're really internalizing the story and, and you're believing it and you feel very passionate about it and it's very genuine yeah. That comes through in the delivery. And I think that's what people connect with. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm listening to some of this back. I'm like, wait, 
am I deluding myself or this is actually okay? Because sometimes <laughs> you hear, I hear my own voice, just my speaking voice, because I get excited and I talk loudly and obnoxious. I'm like, oh my God, my voice sounds horrible. But then I'm like, wait a second. I'm actually listening to some of this because now I'm dancing with myself and I'm dancing with the music and it's all, it's all feels so interconnected, but more importantly, I'm kind of believe, not kind of, I'm genuinely feeling what I'm trying to say here through the words. Yeah. And so that's how I learned to sing. Like it just, it became very intuitive. Like I still joke and I say, I don't know how to play. I don't know music. I don't, I don't, I couldn't tell you what chord this is. Sometimes with Dante, I'll say, okay, you've heard what I did in the last riff. Point me in the direction of what notes my. (laughs) That is awesome. It's like, mom, you've got great ears. Just, just do it. I'll tell you, believe me, I'll tell you if it's, if it sounds completely dissonant because sometimes dissonance is really good. Yeah. So I almost don't want to know, you know, at a certain point I was like, you know, maybe I should start studying a little music there. And I'm like, eh, you know, if it really sounds that bad, Alan never knew. He used to yeah. say he sung in the key of V. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Right. It was so true. And he had this theory of no notes, like you strip everything. That was the other beautiful thing. Everything in life should be called down to the most essential, right? It's like that simplicity. And and I think we're getting away from that today with society and technology is wonderful and social media is wonderful, but it feels like we're losing sight of our basic humanity. I agree a hundred percent. And and I think there's an analogy there to be made with the music too. Alan used to say to me, like the hardest thing to play is something really, really simple because you've got to believe it and you've got to nail it. You've got to nail that to the wall, motherfucker. Yeah. Or it's not going to fly. Exactly. And that's exactly what they were doing with suicide. They were willing to go out on that stage and literally die any given performance because they've truly believed that they were doing something groundbreaking. And, you know, sometimes you question yourself, are we deluding ourselves? Cause people are throwing shit at us. Yeah. Doing... But that was coming from their own thing that had nothing to do with suicide yeah. and what, what Alan and Marty were doing other than they were scaring the shit out of them in some instances. Cause <laughs> it's like, Holy shit. They've just totally rewritten this, <laughs> the book. Yeah. Now what? Now what? Exactly. There was a little bit of that going on too. You know? Yeah. So you've got this music that you're recording it in Alan's space where he, he would do a lot of his artwork. Yes. Was, was that tough to be in that space doing the music? Well, I'm still in that space now that I lived with Alan. We've li- we lived in this particular home. We had another apartment in the same building earlier, but we moved into this and it's a like 22 foot ceilings. It's cool. a really cool loft, two floor space, which was great for Alan to you know, he did all his sculptures here, right? but we would, he liked the separation to go into the recording studio with Perkin when it came time to record. But when Dante started studying sound engineering, we set up a recording studio for Dante in the space where Alan did his sculptures. Okay. And then when, when COVID hit and we're suddenly in lockdown, and I'd come home and Dante would have young hip hop artists coming in and he's doing these recording sessions. And I'm like, shit, you know, He's recording. I want to record here. You know? I was like, wait a second. I want to make music. So as soon as lockdown happened, I suddenly had a captive engineer. I had been writing all this stuff 
So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start making music with Dante. So I would start scheduling sessions with him for like, you know, four to eight in the afternoon. Oh, cool. And before you knew it, we're like cranking out. And Dante's like, mom, I'm just, I'm like, I'm going to, you know, give you production co-producer credit. He's like, mom, I'm just executing your vision. Yes. At first he was like, he was so funny. He's like, this is not my genre, <laughs> <laughs> which I loved because I don't know genres. I'm like, Dante, I have no clue what genres are because I really was not. I mean, other than from the early days when I was really into punk and all that kind of stuff, yeah, I wasn't keeping up with all these, you know, 20,000 different sub genres and genre genres. It, it, everything's yeah it's so fractured now it's, it's just so hard to i know for a fact there are genres with one band in them wow because <laughs> wow i had a he, i had a band wow. on, I like it. this is you create your own genre it, exactly i've had a, one or two bands i know this one band asteroid which is they're amazing asteroid oh i love that they when they were putting up their uh stuff on Bandcamp, you know you've got to put tags for different genres on so people can discover it they just made one up that i don't oh, remember what, it's called like dream core or something i don't know they just perfect totally made it's it more up. mood I, I find the genres are more leaning towards moods now than yeah. genres too that's another thing apparently I, apparently i guess I'm, just so. talking to I'm learning from dante because now i'm like what is this genre thing we're talking about oh. <laughs> teach me i'm like so he's even within like lo-fi apparently in in hip-hop there are like you know 30 different lo-fi genres i'm like what the uh, <laughs> it's too much crazy it's, it's absolutely crazy because this you know everything is pretty much it's kind of how you i don't know it's it's everything you've internalized from the beginning of your existence i mean everything yeah. we hear and see every day becomes part of our unconscious yeah you know so for me when people say oh was it what was this inspired by? And it's not like, I have no clue, yeah. but I do know I've listened to a lot of different music over the years. And, you know, some things maybe are just in, you know, deeply resonating inside of me when I'm creating it. For me, it's more about the movement and the feel of the song. It's, it okay. always starts with that. Oh. You know, it starts with the, with the pace of the, of the, of the drum. You know, and then and then you layer in the the bass, and then the other sounds, and and I'm still creating my own sounds too, which is which is nice. That's, you know, I'm, I'm keeping that tradition, but I'm you know doing it in my, with my own again with my own sensibility and, yeah. and my feel and how I would move through space and time. Yeah, exactly. And you, so you've got a little more freedom now since it's just it's for you. Yes. So the album, it's it's a strong album and. I love the opener, Lights Out. That uh, is a cool song. I did too. Really? Yes. And I think it was inspired by, you know, my life in boxing, which I started boxing in 2006. Okay. Dante would have been eight just before, you know, as I said, from the time he was five, actually more than 10 years from me, from the time he was about five until they were about 16 or 17, getting out of high school, I coached 
mostly soccer, but also baseball. He dropped out of baseball, I think, when he was about 11. But he was also stu- he was also studying Taekwondo. And I would go to the classes and I would sit there and most of the parents are on their phones and I'd be watching the kids do the forms. And then uh, other students who had graduated from the class would come back. Now they're in college or young adults and they'd come back at the end of the class and they would spar you know, everyone would line up across from each other and they'd do kicks back and forth, you know, right. just a casual sparring type yeah. thing. And so eventually the teacher says to me, because he sees that I'm watching them because I'm really into sports, right? He says, hey, do you want to come up and join us? So I did. Uh, and I had memorized, I think I was up to like yellow belt in terms of memorizing the forms. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> First time I got on the floor. Yellow belt in memory. Yeah, exactly. In memory only. I had never even like moved physically through the forms, but I managed to fake it. Wow. And then the very next class, a bunch of people came and, and one of them was a college student who was like a, like, I don't know what degree black belt he was. And he lined up across from me oh. and I didn't even have a belt on yet. So he didn't know what belt, what level I was. Wow. And I tend to be the type of person that moves forward as opposed to back. I tend as if physically in terms of uh, in, as a boxer, I'm a, I'm an, a very aggressive boxer puncher. Like I am very aggressive. Okay. So this was before I started boxing. So I moved forward just as he was kicking and he kicked me in the direct hit in the ribs. I went flying back. I had very badly bruised ribs for a few months. So as I was recovering from that, I'm thinking, hmm, what am I going to do next? <laughs> Maybe it's not Taekwondo. And Alan was having a nutty. I, Dante and I used to walk by this boxing club, a traditional boxing club. It's called Trinity Boxing. The, it looked like a movie set from, you know, going back in time to traditional boxing with all kinds of like cool memorabilia and whatnot and all of the train. And I could hear hip hop music cranking out of this place. The windows were open to the street and I'm kind of peeking in as we would walk by to go to the sports fields. So this isn't, I'm like, Hmm, I say to Alan and Alan used to always watch boxing. I'm like, I think I'm going to take up boxing. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? One of the first things he says is, I really like your nose. <laughs> he says, I'm going to be so pissed if you fuck up your nose. I'm like, Alan, I'm not going to, I don't have to spar. You know, I'll come, right? Yeah, right. About two months in, I'm like, okay, I'm going to spar. And I'm only going to spar. They're professional fighters and they're men. They're not going to hit me in the face. Right. It's like, okay. Well, I've got headgear on and a mouthpiece. So they're hitting me in the face, but I'm <laughs> more or less I'm blocking. I'm learning. I'm learning how to block and my defense is getting better. Don't worry. And they are still afraid to hit me hard because I'm a woman. Right. It, they, they still have that like sexist thing going on, <laughs> which I used to my advantage as much as I possibly could because I was very I'm going in. I'm going for the kill. And they're afraid <laughs> It wasn't until I started sparring with women that I'm like, uh-oh, uh, these women are seriously coming at me. Now. Especially they will match your level of intensity. Oh, I That's bet. the beauty of boxing. Wow. So, yeah. So this is like 2006. I very quickly, from the day I walked into Trinity Boxing, I'm like, sign me up for the annual. I'm like, <laughs> you know, this is no intro to boxing right. thing. I am a thousand percent hooked. And like literally training three or four times a week. Cause that's, you know, I don't, I tend to go full tilt when I get into something. Really? And, and that was my, so when it came time to write the first song, I'm like, Hmm, I'm going to use like 
analogies and metaphors from boxing that are really metaphors for life. Okay. And you learn so many life lessons in boxing. The thing that, that really caught me from the very beginning is the level of respect that I had for these fighters because they are genuinely putting their life on the line when they step into that ring. Yeah. There is absolutely nothing on this planet that is going to focus your attention as stepping into a ring when you, even when it's just sparring and you know, the person coming at you is coming at you with bad intentions and you have to protect yourself at all times. And you've both kind of signed on to this idea that it's a chess match and we're each going to try to protect ourselves but I'm going to try to land clean shots on you, you know? And, you know, again, it's funny though, with the women though, I would be a little less, I'd be a little more hesitant to like, you know, stick the jab into somebody's face. I'd be going more for the body shots. And the same thing I I tell them as I got older, I'm like, you know, believe it or not. Oh, so the, the owner of the gym eventually says to me, Oh, you manage Alan's music career. And you know, you're a lawyer why don't you manage some of these women? Cause it was harder for the women to get fights. And it's oh, a very, okay. it's a very tricky sport. Well, the perception, at least the good fights, you know, they can get club dates, but to get the money fights and to the bigger, you know, to perform at the Barclay center, mm-hmm. Madison square garden, you, there's it's still, you know, MMA is much more, much, much further advanced than boxing is yeah. in terms of, you know, there are some of the Serrano sisters and Katie Taylor and um, Clarissa Shields. And, you know, there's a lot of, higher profile women now, but back then it really, and and there was always the excuse that, Oh, people don't want to see women fight the women, the female fights were the most intense because they're, they're brutal. (laughs) They will not cut you any slack. (laughs) So, so Martin's like, go get your manager's license. So I think I, I went, you know, 48 pages of regulations later, you know, I sat down one night and memorized. And the next day I go into the New York state athletic commission and I like ace the test. I think I got like a hundred percent. I probably proceeded to forget all the regulations within a week. (laughs) But that's, you know, that's how my, my mind had that photographic memory thing going. And so I literally did that. And then I started managing a few of the women. Wow. And then eventually I started managing a couple of the men. I was legal advisor to someone who got a world title. Oh, wow. And became a really close friend. So that was really cool. And then I decided, because this whole ageism thing, like the one of the things that would really inspire me was that the women at the gym would be like, you know, because they knew I was I was older when I started. And they're like, you are so inspiring, like the way you move and your energy and and everything else. Like they're not afraid to get older. Right. And that's part of my the whole keep it alive. It's like and Alan had that in spades, no matter what's happening physically, like if you keep that inner fire going and you have passion and energy and enthusiasm that comes out and it, it inspires other people. And that's the thing that, that attracts that positive energy to you, you know? And, and that's the thing that I I love that. I love the fact that the women were were very inspired by me. So I said, you know what, I'm going to see if I can get licensed by the New York state athletic commission and make my pro boxing debut. Alan, freaked out. He's like, there's no way. But I have to tell you right after he passed, I did, I I had some, I had to have very competitive sparring with professional fighters. And, you know, I got, I got a little hurt even in the sparring. It was was serious just doing that. Um, And I was, they gave me the nod, but I had to get medical clearance. 
And when I went, I had to have x-rays done. And, you know, I've got some degenerating discs in the neck, completely consistent with my age. Mm -hmm. But still, it's like there's a reason that people, you know, even in their 40s are not fighting professionally without headgear. It's very dangerous. And the doctor's like, do you really want... To, to make a point, do you really want to be paralyzed? Like, and Dante's like, I'm not spoon feeding you. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so what's the second scariest thing I could do? Make a record. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to make, right? So that was my aha moment. Okay. So when it came time to make the record, I'm like, okay, the first song is going to be about boxing and it's going to be lights out. And it's kind of those life lessons that whole kind of fight for your life, let your hands go, you know, it's like, yeah. Okay. So that that's where that came from. And, and I love that song. I, I love the groove. Yeah. I was really lucky. Larry Hardy has been amazingly supportive. And he's like, you got to have a video. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, how fun would that be? Oh, <laughs> I'm like, okay, awesome. cool. I've never done anything like that. And I'm a little self-conscious when it comes to like, I'm not used to being front and center, but I'm Hey, fuck it. This is fun. Let's have fun with it. And that was my comfort zone. We're in the gym, you know, and it it was, yeah, I, I love that. And I love doing the video. Um, And Jenny who did the the first video is doing a video for the song sin, which was loosely based on Dante's Inferno. characters portraying the seven deadly sins oh cool and it's a completely different vibe it is going to be so beautiful and so decadent and so cool and oh, yeah I'm, I'm very very grateful and very excited to see the end product of that we had so much fun shooting that oh i can't wait and, that's awesome yeah so i'm actually actually having an absolute blast and i feel so grateful to be you know at this stage in my life to be fortunate, you know, it's one of the things that, um, that kind of also, you know, resonates with me is this whole idea of, you know, we were on this one journey, you know, and I think the the second song that I put out was freedom's last call. Oh, great song. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Right I'm so is. humble, right? Yeah. I fucking love that. So. <laughs> classic. You're like, I mean, it's an absolute instant classic. <laughs> you know what? Fuck it. It's like I, I paid my dues. I've been when, when you've been around long enough. It's like you know what? It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. I'm I'm proud and I'm happy about it. But you should be. You know, it's that whole that whole idea of personal freedom too. You know, obviously, there's a lot of issues on many levels with freedom these days but yeah. you know i think the, i think confucius said it, we have two lives and the second begins when you realize you only have one yeah. and i love that because <laughs> we 
we all think we've got all the time in the world. Yeah. You know, and there are days when, you know, and that was also written during COVID was like, you know, you've got no time for nothing days and then nothing but time, time, time for days and days. Like there are days when you feel like I've got no time. I've got no time. Da, 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 da. I'm so I'm so busy. I'm so busy. And then there are days when it's like, holy shit, is this day going to end? Nothing but time. Yeah. Nothing to do. And then you don't re- and then your lights flashed out. It was gone in a flash. Yeah, you know, exactly. And it's like it's how you choose to spend that. You know, you've got this one run and, and what are you going to do with it? You know, and it's that kind of personal freedom and the free will that we all have that really can't be taken from us ultimately, no matter what is going on politically and all the divisiveness and the atrocities that, I mean, it's just shocking what's still happening in the world. Where is our humanity and where is our like wanting to explore each other's essence and laugh at ourselves and let the self-importance fade away and just be in the moment and, and really experience the joy of, of living in the moment and, It's sad. And you would hope that we'd learn some lessons from the crazy uncertainties and the challenges that we are all facing now. Let's let's treat each other beautifully and inhumanely and with love and respect and love the fact that we each have different views and opinions and because we each have had such a different reality and, and a series of experiences. Yeah. And one of us is so different in an and yet we're each so human and we each experience the basic essentials of eating and breathing and sleeping and loving. And yeah, I don't know. I love cruise screen. I love oh. it. I kind of like the slower stuff. That That is just a great track. Right? Thank you. And, you know, that also was kind of inspired by this whole idea of social media and just getting sucked up into the, you know, the wave of your riding on this open ocean and you're like the empty vessel, yeah. gray soul. Like how many images can you take? How many filters for you to fake? Oh, you know, know, it's like we're just so sucked into that and it's i don't know surface it's very surface very and you know and as a new emerging artist i'm you know faced with the conundrum of i have no social media very little social media presence so only over the last like i guess year or so with with instagram and before that facebook was really so i could keep in touch with the boxers and in terms of like posting what they you know their fights and going to fights. And it was really about that. It wasn't about me. Hey, look at my life and look at all these selfies. I'm still so self-conscious about documenting myself and here's my, you know, all this kind of stuff, but you really are at a significant disadvantage if you're not engaging in social media. So I'm in in a situation where I'm trying to stay very real and genuine to myself I don't even know how to post half this shit. It's like, <laughs> oh shit, I forgot to tag this one, or I'm supposed to do these hashtags. And I'm, da, 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 da. I'm, I'm so like, bad oh, at those. 
And it's like, I just want to, you know, you do want to share stuff. Yeah. And I do really love the fact that people are so, you know, supportive and, and kind and, you know, will say things and, and weigh in. And like, I love that, but it's like, oh, wow, there's a lot of pressure. It's like, I don't know how to market myself. Like, I don't want to have to market myself. That's why it's fun to like do the videos. And, and I'm very grateful that I have a label and a team, which brings me to, and here I am just keep jumping in. It's like a monologue here. Sorry. No, sorry. (laughs) And I swear I didn't have like 15 cups of coffee. I just get excited. It's, it's just, it's just, you should be, it's, it's a great album and it's, it's so much fun to listen to. Well, for me, it's just even just talking about music or boxing. Yeah. You know, and it's the same, it's the same thing, but I do want to, since we are talking about cruise screen and social media, I do want to mention that I would not be in a, the position I'm in now to be able to get music out there and to be able to have help in not only solidifying, but building Alan Vega's legacy. If it weren't for Jared Arto yeah. and the creative director, Michael Handis, who together they're the, the linchpin of the Vega Vault team. They established our social media in 2019 for Alan Vega. They most recently were involved in BMG's release of the suicide first compilation surrender that Henry Rollins did the liner notes for. Yeah. And Jared and Michael designed the packaging, which I think is absolutely iconic. They're so true to the ethos of not only Alan, but, but suicide. This is, this is something that they take so seriously and, you know, they do all their research and they've unearthed so much just, they're like, they're like archeologists and historians and, and brilliant creatives in their own right, but they don't interject their own ego. They're able to step back and really stay true to the vision. And it's just been amazing. And I feel very grateful for that as I feel extremely grateful for Caleb at sacred bones who had the, the vision to say, wow, I love this idea of putting out Alan Vega unreleased music from the vault and Jared and I going in. So they did a fantastic job with mutator. And then of course, you know, Larry at in the red, Larry Hardy's been unbelievably supportive and he put out the alan vega after dark with ben vaughn who ben is amazing oh it, ben is incredible he, he is, is so talented yeah alan loved doing cubist blues with him and alex chilton that's a great album oh that whole experience was incredible and again that was a perfect example of kind of going in without any expectations and just seeing what happens just being in the moment and letting it go and and ben facilitated that so beautifully because he's brilliant in his own right. But again, his own ego, he can, he's able to, to give the space and the room for that to breathe. Yeah. And Alan, Alan was very, was very gracious that way as well. When you collaborated with Alan, he wanted the other, whoever was collaborating with him to do the, to bring their own thing to it as well. So, and um, yeah, so the, the Vega vault is, is just a whole other ongoing for me, this could go on for years, yeah. continuing to kind of excavate, not only from recordings that Alan and I did together, but there's so much stuff previously unreleased live recordings and oh, studio wow. alternate versions for both Suicide and Vega. So Jared and Michael are now spearheading the 
the suicide social media as well. And so they're, they like, you know, they, they are, you know, fluent in that and they can do it in a way that's still very genuine. We're not looking to have like, you know, hundreds and hundreds, it would be nice to have hundreds and hundreds of thousand followers, but it's more about the quality of the outreach than the quantity. Right. You know, a lot of people, you can just, whatever, I'm sure there was ways to just buy all kinds of influence and everything oh, else yeah. and make it look like you're like, and you know, that, that has very little interest. I, you know, I used to say to Alan when he used to have to hear how he wasn't commercial, your stuff doesn't sell. You know, you can't sell, 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 sell. They're selling you, selling you, selling you, selling you, selling you, yeah. you know? And what I would say to him is the most beautiful thing is seeing people come up to you and tell you how you touched their lives, how you influenced them to be creative, to start a band or to paint or whatever it was that they did. And I would see it time and again when we first started going over to Europe, when I first met him. And here he is coming off Electra and, you know, on paper, has he failed? He didn't do the major label thing. He couldn't sell, you know, this kind of nonsense. Yeah. And then it's like, wow, look at what a run. And he totally appreciated that, you know, by the end of his life, he totally understood. And he knew that his influence was only going to continue to be recognized. And, and that's why we're on this mission because we really feel just like Henry, what's going on? Yeah. I can't fucking believe it. I can't get these records of the United <laughs> States. Henry formed a friggin' record label with Rick Rubin so he could release Alan Vega records in the US because they were only available in Europe. And what the fuck is going on that's, here? You know, this kind of thing. Awesome. And right. And it's like, but we're still in that same kind of situation where, you know, you can get on TikTok and just be like, I don't know, whatever you're doing, which uh. is like, you know, shaking your body or something. I don't and now ballooned, Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of talented people. I, I'm not on TikTok, but I'm sure there are a lot of, there's a lot of really genuinely talented people, but there's a lot of empty famous for being famous type. Yeah. I don't understand it. My kids are on it. They laugh their heads off every time. And fun. Well, cause a lot of this stuff is funny and it yeah. is fun, but you know, is this, how, how deep does that the well run? <laughs> so speaking of the, the Vega vault, are you in the same mold as Alan when it comes to the amount of stuff is the album is what? Seven tracks. It's only seven tracks right after that. I had met a hip hop artist ringside. He was best friends with the wife of one of the boxers I manage. Okay. And we just started talking and I had just finished doing keep it alive with Dante. And he was living in Vegas and then he was out in Seattle during COVID. We, we just hit it off. And he's like, you know what? I'd love to do an album with you. He didn't do any of his own beats. And he said, you know what? I'll do the beats. Yeah. Right now I'm a hip hop artist. <laughs> so I literally did nine tracks of beats. Nice. He flies in. And then like over the course of like five days, cause I had all these lyrics too, that I didn't use for my project, but just sketches mm -hmm. and he's on his phone. And this is back when I'm still handwriting stuff. So I learned a lot from him. I learned how to like, we're not cutting pasting or anything like that. We're just jumping on the mic. Wow. He does a verse. I do a verse. He does a verse. I do a verse. We did that like song after song. I felt oh, I would be so proud of me. That this is, is like the same kind of thing. And I literally had all these, what, you know, in, in hip hop, it's the music is the beat, right? Yeah. So I did have it a little bit more stripped down. It was easier to do it. It was like more like I was trying to be like, put on my Kanye West hat. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> 
Johnny's confidence. Month, right? I love that. No, but I did. I loved his attitude. You know, oh, yeah. you know, you know, this, you know, some of the, the creativity and the quirkiness and the sounds and the, yeah. just the, the, the word play and, and all of that, you know? So I was able to tap into a little bit more of that because this guy is really clever with lyrics. Oh, cool. And so I learned so much working with him because I had ideas, but then I would, you know, just kind of pivot and to, to kind of go with what he was doing. Okay. And we just knocked out nine songs over the course of like, he came twice and each time he was in town for like four or five days and he'd come over every day and Dante and would get on the mic and would do this thing. And then Dante and I mixed it. And so that's mixed in master too. I don't know if it's going to see the light of day. So it's like, we'll see. Oh, I think it's really good. That's yeah. awesome. Oh, I've played my it for a few people who've like, wow, this is really cool. But I want to stay for now. I want to focus on my solo. Cause I didn't mm-hmm. want to get into a situation where I immediately come out with something that is, Oh, once again, it's a collaboration with somebody else. I really want to be kind of front and center and just really establish that. So I'm, I am working on Dante and I are, he's engineering again. What we did the last time is Dante and I engineered it. And then Jared was awesome with just finalizing the mixes. And, you know, he was, he really helped me. We edited out some of the vocal. There's a lot more vocal in the hip hop thing because it's a lot more, right? You know, that, yeah. that goes with that style, right? That's so so cool. Jared made pulled a little, little of the stuff out of mine, made it a little bit more, you know, I, he did a great job kind of finalizing it. Yeah. And so we're going to do the same thing on this second one oh, that I'm working great. on now. Yeah. So I'm not slow. No, I'm not stopping anytime soon. Excellent. Yeah. I'm loving it. I'm having so much fun. Is there a lot of unreleased yeah. stuff besides the, the hip hop stuff? Have you gotten that yes. with, with Alan? Like he was recording yet. You, you know, he's got an entire vault worth of stuff. How no, about you? Because what, what happened is Dante now is back at, he works at three different recording studios. Ah. So he's not here and I'm trying to, I'm trying to get booked at the fight club with them or, you know, Hey, let me go to the city. <laughs> I might have to get another engineer, but we work so well together and he understands me. And we talk, Dante's interesting because he knows all the technical lingo, but he also understands my crazy hippie vernacular. Like, Oh, and you know, this guy, you know what I mean? so he knows what I'm talking about and he's able to execute my vision. As he said, even though it's not his genre. That, I think we just brought the whole thing full circle. Right? Thank you. Thank you. So are you planning on doing any live shows or supporting I would love to. Yes, absolutely. And, Excellent. you know, when I first did this, I'm thinking, because I'm only used to really, other than I've been invited to do, in fact, the, the first time I, I actually got out on stage and performed as lead singer was Jesse Mallon invited me to do the suicide tribute concert to sing like, you know, I did wild and blue and no, I did, I did a couple of songs the first year that Alan and I had done off it. Okay. And I did that with Alan and I'm sorry, with uh, Perkin and Dante and Jared. And then the next year I got up and I sang wild and blue, which I love that track. Yeah. And so, and I'm like, wow, I'm kind of owning the stage. I'm by myself. I'm singing. This is kind of fun. So that kind of gave me the balls, so to speak, to be like, wait a second, I can make a solo album. I can actually sort of kind of sing. And then Jesse invited me to do the cramps tribute thing too. So now I'm channeling Lux and Terry. I'm like, wow, this this is really cool. So I actually really kind of love that. Even though I loved being in the back of the stage with Alan, because you could do whatever you wanted. 
And it was like, oh, everyone's watching Alan. Yeah. So there was no, like, I didn't have that performance anxiety there it is. Go. <laughs> that I might otherwise have. But I have to tell you, I love performance anxiety. It's like getting into the ring, right? Yeah. There's nothing like that adrenaline rush, getting into the ring, sparring, or getting stepping out on stage. I love it. Yeah. Absolutely love it. So yes, the, the, the short answer is I would love to perform this. When I first did the record, I sent it to Mark Hurtado. It was Mark and Henry Rollins and Michael Alago, who I love because he's like, you know, great. I think he's got great ears too and got such positive feedback. But Hurtado was funny. He's like, I could totally hear this in all the clubs in New York. I'm like, right? That's, <laughs> me too. That's I love great. this kind of I love this vibe. I mean, I guess there's nothing wrong with saying it because that's, I make music that I like to listen to. I yeah. mean, I guess that's totally natural. I love it too. Exactly. Right? And Larry was funny when he, when he first called me after, and so I sent it to Henry. Henry's like, you got to release this stuff. And I'm like, he's like, is Sacred Bones putting it out? I'm like, oh no, I'm not like Yoko Ono. It's like a Sacred Bones is like, <laughs> I feel, I feel very uncomfortable even mentioning to them that I'm even thinking about doing music. Yeah. I felt very shy about that. Like, who am I? You know? But I understand then, that. Right. But then when like Henry and, and Mark and, and Michael are like, I love this. I'm like, oh, okay. So you may, yeah, fuck it. I do kind of want other people to hear it. And yes, it would be a blast to perform it. So yeah, let's do it. Excellent. <laughs> so he said, he said, can I send it to Larry Hardy? And I'm like, sure. Cause I had already been talking to Larry when he put out after, after dark and he was such a cool guy. I just loved his vibe. And so I'm like, sure. And then Larry calls me. He's like, I've been listening to your album. I think he was like writing his exercise. Oh, I, I can see that. He was like, you moved to, right? Yeah. That's like such a compliment to me. Cause I love, you know, I'm a person who loves to move. Yeah. You know, I work out a lot, but you, you know, box, right. I box. You have to be working out pretty yeah. much all the time. Standing like, still is death in the ring. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You have to have a lot of endurance. So anyway, and hence, hence the talking nonstop. <laughs> no, it's, it's been wonderful. And I, I've kept you for quite a long time. Yes. You, yes. Where can people find the album and how can they follow you on social media to get more news on your stuff and uh, Vega vault? Okay. Well, they can follow me at, at Lamarie Liz. That's my Instagram. And you know, I've got all the links in the Linktree bio on my Instagram. And the album is coming out. It's called Keep It Alive. It's coming out on In the Red Records on May 20th. So, and it'll be on, you know, all of the DSPs. We've got two videos that are, well, we've got a Lights Out video has already dropped. We have a great lyric video for Freedom's Last Call that, that dropped last week. And we will have Sin dropping on, I believe, May 18th, followed by the full album on the 20th. And then Alan Vega, there's the at Alan Vega official and at Suicide Band official. If you want, anyone wants to follow what we're doing with the Vega Vault, they can go there. Perfect. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been great. Thank you, Mark. 